This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain, and this presentation will, a fair warning, radically reshape the way that you look at the world and history and the present and therefore the future. So history is generally taught, and I have a graduate degree in history, focusing on the history of philosophy, but history is generally taught as big grand movements and ideas and armies and politics and treaties and all of that. And... I'm going to put forward a pretty radical thesis here that all of that is an effect, not a cause. And there's this swaying back and forth in the world between people who counsel violence and people who counsel sweet reason. And somehow it's perceived that, well, the people who are really convincing with violence change the minds of the masses, of the intellectuals and the politicians to violence. But people who put forward sweet reason as the way to deal with human conflicts, well, sometimes they're just more persuasive and they listen. Socrates versus Miletus, for instance. Aristotle versus Athenian democracy, as was the case with Plato as well. It is not the eloquence of those who advocate for reason or violence that sways the minds of the masses. We are predisposed to listen to a language we already speak. I mean, imagine you're in a crowded room, everybody's speaking a different language, but one person is speaking the language you grew up with. Ah, you will listen to that person. Now, the way that I'm going to approach the French Revolution history as a whole, modern times, is neither radical nor unusual, except insofar as it is consistent with what everybody already knows. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. The child is the father of the man. Or as Jesus said, whatever you do to the least among you, so do you also do to me. And should someone in your community harm the children, it is better that a millstone be tied around his neck and be, he be cast into the deep waters. Think of how much of your life is conditioned by your early childhood experiences. If you grew up with chaos and violence, depredations, predations, exploitations, you speak that language, you understand that world, tragically. If you grew up with sweet reason and negotiation and peace and calm and joy and love, you speak that language. And the chaotic world is more than a foreign landscape, it's like another dimension. And there's a great tragedy, of course, that those who grow up with chaos and violence and who escape through hook by crook, through self-knowledge, through philosophy, through virtue, that those who escape don't go back. Why would you want to? If you get out of prison, you break out of prison, why would you want to break back into prison? But leaving those behind in the squalor of suffering has its consequences. And the blowback of leaving people behind is considerable and sometimes can cost into the hundreds of millions of lives. So we're going to talk about the French Revolution. It's a very important, very deep, very powerful historical topic. The approach that I'm going to take, you've probably not heard before. I'm not the only person, of course, who talks about childhood in its relationship to history. But childhood plus objective ethics, that is a potent combination which will crack the nut of the French Revolution, open it wide to your deep understanding. And through that process, you will understand the world you live in and the world that is to come. Because we definitely want to have a choice about the world that is to come, but if we don't understand the world that was and the world that is, well, it's like trying to get to a place when you don't know where you've been or where you are. So, we're going to talk about the silent scourge behind the French Revolution. Of course, the French Revolution is a wild, turbulent, powerful, terrifying, hopeful, idealistic, and ultimately bloody period of human history. It's fascinated everyone for century after century. It captures our collective imagination 
with the tales of grandeur, devastation, idealism, rebellion, and violence. To aim as high as the intellectuals did and to end up with as hellish a landscape as can be imagined is something that really needs to be understood. It stands as one of the most brutal and tragically malevolent revolutions in history, spilling rivers of blood that have forever stained the fabric of human civilization. So we're going to dive into this whirlpool of events. We're going to try and uncover layers untouched before now. Narratives that have escaped the sore on eye of big event, big ideas, big movements, big military historians. I mean, don't you want to know how people aiming for such peace end up with such violence? And aren't you curious about the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which had widely divergent outcomes? So we're going to dive into this churning whirlpool of events. We're going to talk about layers that have not been talked about, narratives that have been ignored by all the big picture, big idea big war historians. I'll tell you straight up front, no surprises here, my thesis is that the French Revolution, at its core, was not only the offspring of rampant child abuse, I mean, with extreme neglect, rejection, confinement, and abandonment, and violence reigning supreme, but that those who escaped the hell of the day and could have circled back and helped all the broken children left behind did not the middle class, the bourgeois, who could have been the beacon of hope, the harbingers of change, chose to turn a blind eye, either fleeing the ensuing chaos or immersing themselves in isolation, deaf to the inferno that raged around them. When some of their number did get involved, they also ignored the interests of children, instead adding fuel to the wild conflagration of the French Revolution. So we're going to understand and unpack this deeply entrenched cycle of despair. To do that, we have to travel back through the centuries and familiarize ourselves with the intellectuals, habits, childhood practices, and influencers of the time. The philosophies they gave birth to hold an indomitable sway, even today, fanning the flames of zealous mobs and simultaneously binding the puppeteers, orchestrating the mayhem, even as they too are slowly consumed by its fury. We're going to go through the gritty streets of pre-revolutionary France, illuminating the lives of its youngest and most hidden inhabitants. We're going to look into what childhood was truly like at this time. And we will expose through this process the dark underbelly of the revolution. A web of deceit, strategic manipulation, sheer carnage, and glaring hypocrisy. As we go through this journey together. We're going to draw the parallels, contrasting pre-revolutionary France with America, showing the profound differences that shaped their distinct trajectories. It's going to be dark. It's going to be deep. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be about you and me, the past, the present, and the future. Let's get started. Okay, so let's look at the 18th century influences. So really to understand the French Revolution, You've got to understand the words in the hearts and minds of the people who undertook all of this savagery. Of course, many intellectuals are said to have influenced the French Revolution. Four in particular really stand out. Voltaire, of course, 21st November 1694 to the 30th of May 1778. A big fan of free speech, religious tolerance, separation of church and state, anti-slavery and pro-scientific progress. He was critical of organized religion, especially Christianity, of course, though he did believe in a supreme being. From Voltaire's Philosophical Dictionary, and I quote, All the poor are not unhappy. The majority were born in that state, and continual work stops their feeling their position too keenly. But when they feel it, then one sees wars, like that of the Popular Party against the Senate Party in Rome, like those of the peasants in Germany, England, and France. All these wars finish sooner or later with the subjection of the people because they, the powerful, have money. And money is master of everything in a state. I say 
in a state, for it is not the same between nations. The nation which makes the best use of the sword will always subjugate the nation which has more gold and less courage. Ah, so here's an answer. Why are there rebellions? Why is there chaos and violence? Well, the poor, when they notice that they're poor, get angry. But most times they don't because they're stuck in their daily drudge. Now, it's kind of hard for us to really understand, let alone imagine, let alone inhabit the idea of how much leisure the poor had in the past. In Spain, there were five months of holidays every year. Particularly the poor who worked the land over the winter, there's not that much to do. Months and months with very little to do. So the idea that the poor were just so full of drudgery they couldn't notice their state would be an idea or an argument peculiar to somebody who worked in the city, because, of course, in the city, the poor tend to work long hours, but in the country, not so much. So his answer as to why there's war and revolution is, well, the poor just notice that they're unhappy. Well, not the greatest answer in the world. And once you see the depth of what we're talking about here, hopefully that will make some sense. All right, let's talk about Diderot, 5th. October 1713 to the 31st of July 1784, a philosopher, of course, from France, who was also an art commentator and author, notably recognized for his role as the primary editor and co-creator of the Encyclopédie. And I will, of course, inevitably have to apologize for my lackluster French pronunciation. Though I have a French last name, I was not raised with the tongue. So... The, the uh, Encyclopédie, a French encyclopedia created in the 18th century, one of the principal works of the Enlightenment, absolutely giant set of tomes. The English translation, the full title is Encyclopedia, or Classified Dictionary of Sciences, Arts, and Trades. And the, the direction of Denis Diderot, 17 volumes were published between 1751 and 1765. Other volumes were added later for a total of 35 volumes. Monstrous. So, what was Diderot wrestling with? Well, the rationale behind morality in a godless world. The world as a whole, particularly the Western world, is divided between pre-science and post-science. And I mean Baconian modern science, objectivity, reproducibility, the scientific method, skepticism, things that even though there were great classical scientists, Aristotle was one, the modern scientific method, 16th century onwards, utterly divided the world. Because, of course, religion and the aristocracy had promised a great world full of knowledge and progress and facts and medicine and understanding but it was science that did that for us. And those of us who've been raised in the post-scientific world, we really can't understand what the world looked like to those pre-modern science. But it was a deep shock to the entire world that religion had promised progress. Aristocracy kings had promised progress. But the real progress came from materialism, rationalism, skepticism, science, which went very much against the grain of what everyone had been told. It's as strange to you and I as if it was suddenly discovered that smoking was the healthiest thing you could do. It would be like, <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. And so the idea that you discard theology and you discard aristocracy and that scientific facts are available to everyone who follows the scientific method, that there was a recipe or a path, epistemologically in terms of the study of the nature of reality and the development of knowledge, that there was a path for every individual to achieve knowledge. Everyone could contribute. You didn't need to be well-learned in theology. You didn't need to be born into the right family. Truth became, and I use this word advisedly because democratic has been somewhat corrupted, but truth became Truly democratic. Everyone could participate in this. I actually wrote a section in one of my novels called Just Poor about the scientific communities that sprang up all over the world in 
the most remote villages, there were people studying astronomy and geology and botany and chemistry. The rush to understanding unleashed by the scientific method was astounding. And all the people who had claimed to know the unknowable were revealed as somewhat fraudulent. All the people who said, well, we know how society could be organized because we're placed here by God, or we have some special theological understanding, or we know ancient Aramaic, or we can read Latin. All of these people who who claimed esoteric knowledge well, they were revealed as false prophets. Truth, reason, facts, knowledge, understanding were available to everyone who followed a methodology that was often rejected by the existing power structure. I can't tell you just how much this blew everyone's minds. And the rush to knowledge, the rush to understanding, coincided with, of course, people looking at theology and saying, like the old song, what have you done for me lately? They looked at the kings and said, our knowledge and our understanding does not come from you does not come from the priests. It comes from the natural philosophers, the scientists, are telling us the way that the world is, and yet you claimed all this knowledge, and it's the opposite of your epistemology that is giving us the actual truth. But, but, this is, of course, something that the modern world continues to wrestle with, deeply, tragically, enormously. Okay, the world is matter and energy, Things and void. Principles and atoms. Where is the good? Where is morality? It is not in the atoms. It is not in the principles of matter and energy. It is not in the space between things, and it is not in the things themselves. Where is morality? Of course, the Christian answer is that morality is commanded by God, who reigns supreme over everything. But... The problem is, of course, when you have a methodology called the scientific method that needs not the divine, and it produces a spectacular eruption of understanding about the natural world, it's hard to say the complete opposite methodology should be used to unpack the challenges of morality. Science is not commanded, but explored. Morality is commanded. How do we answer the question of virtue when science is so effective at answering questions? Diderot also tried to figure out rational criteria for evaluating art, understanding human origin and identity. He worked hard, as the French often do, to explore sex and love. And, ooh, I wonder if this is interesting to me as a person. The philosopher's role in politics. Hmm, yes, it could be. It could well be. So in 1746, Diderot penned his inaugural piece, Philosophical Thoughts. (laughs) Okay, he's not known for the most imaginative titles in the world. He advocated for a harmonious balance between logic and emotion. He believed that without emotion, one cannot achieve moral excellence or produce outstanding works. Ah, Aristotelian mean, unchecked emotion can be harmful, emphasizing the need for reason to guide it. And, of course, we have the ancient passions from our evolution, and we have the modern faculty of reason, of conceptions, of abstractions, as I've termed it, the post-monkey beta expansion pack, somewhat buggy. How, when the passions pull us in one direction, but reason pulls us in another, who should win? How can you balance these two forces? It's the mind-body dichotomy. Now, of course, everybody talks about these challenges in the study of reality and the nature of morality and the problem of politics and how do you check our propensity to be corrupted by power without giving people immeasurable power through the agency of the state. Now, these are all, you know, big, important and deep questions. But, 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 but everybody steps right over childhood. As if childhood is just one constant throughout the world, throughout time, throughout history, start to end, north, south, east, west, no matter which culture, everybody has exactly the same childhood. It's just like a photocopy. 
everybody has the same childhood. The vague perception, the unconscious perception goes, well, everyone has the same childhood. So all changes in society must come out of art, culture, philosophy, historical movements, the world spirit, the sweep and grandiosity of great ideas, military might swashing back and forth like a bloody tide across the human landscape. Ah, oh, but, but, what if childhood is the key to unlock the mystery of history? What if it is? What if? Again, just, I haven't made the case. I understand that. I haven't made the case. I'm just putting it out there as a teaser. What if everybody has different, what if cultures as a whole have really, really different childhoods and that explains a lot of what happens because that's the language everyone grows up to speak, which means that's what they listen to. Now, we got Montesquieu, 18th January 1689 to 10th February 1755. The greatest contributor to the theory of the separation of powers. <laughs> and of course, if you want to, the separation of powers is that you need a balance of competing or opposing forces within government to check its power. So you have the executive, the judiciary, you have Congress or a parliament or something like that, and they all kind of tangle with each other, and hopefully that blunts a central charge to dictatorial power. Now, if as a child you've ever played one adult off against another, you've ever played your mother off against your father, and you've hoped to blunt punishment by working parents against each other, you'll understand where this idea that this can work somehow comes from. I mean, Montesquieu's theory of the separation of powers is widely adopted in global constitutions. He was instrumental in popularizing the term despotism in political terminology. Montesquieu was a strong influence on the founding fathers of the U.S. and, of course, the U.S. Constitution. In his seminal work, The Spirit of Law, Montesquieu argued against slavery, emphasizing the inherent equality of all humans at birth. However, he did suggest that there might be some justification in sweltering climates for slavery because laborers, laborers might be less willing to work of their own accord. I guess he liked his sugar cane. Here's a quote from Montesquieu. It is not chance that rules the world. Ask the Romans, who had a continuous sequence of successes when they were guided by a certain plan, and an uninterrupted sequence of reverses when they followed another. There are the general causes, moral and physical, which act on every monarchy, elevating it, maintaining it, or hurling it to the ground. All accidents are controlled by these causes, and if the chance of one battle, that is, a particular cause, has brought a state to ruin, some general cause made it necessary for that state to perish from a single battle. In a word, the main trend draws with it all particular accidents. Ah, it says it's not chance that rules the world. Well, what is it that rules the world? Ah, uh, childhood. Childhood rules the world. And I don't know what it is in historians and their own childhoods that has them skate over this most foundational issue. Why would they want to ignore everything that happened to them as children? Rousseau, oh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 28th of June to 1712 to 2nd July 1778. All right, allow me, with your kind indulgence to wax, a little bit poetic here. If history were a grand tapestry of human endeavor and intellect stitched together with threads of thoughts and ideologies, then amongst its darkest, most insidious fibers would be woven the legacy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. To say that Rousseau's impact on philosophy and politics was significant would be an understatement. In a world burgeoning with sophistic titans, his footprints loom so large that they dwarf even those of Marx. And while Marx left the world gasping under the weight of his doctrines, it was Rousseau who tilled the soil, preparing it for Marx's devastating crop. Rousseau was born middle class but reveled in the privilege that gave him over those of a lower station. Despite not being rich, Rousseau was the archetype of what we would today deride as a champagne socialist. Although he was averse 
to toil and exhibited a palpable disdain for private property, he never hesitated to partake in the privileges they provided. This dichotomy haunted Rousseau's existence, a man of rank contradictions, a storm of swirling hypocrisies. His prodigious output as the writer was matched only by the potency of his ideas, with an unconsciously guilt-ridden aristocracy. Among the vast sea of his works, some stand out for their enduring influence. I say this, of course, cruising around show 5,500. But hey, let's get back to Rousseau. Discourse on Inequality, a treatise arguing against the sanctity of private property, positing it as the root of societal inequities. Now, without diving too deep into Rousseau as a whole, this is Proudhon's famous statement, property is theft. And what he means by that, of course, is landed property held by the violent might of the aristocracy, often granted, as it was to my ancestors, to warriors who slaughtered the king's enemies, you'd get land as a result. And land fell down through the generations, was originally based upon bloody conquest and often murder, wasn't exactly wars of self-defense a lot of times. So the idea that private property is evil has to do more with the landed gentry, the historical aristocracy, rather than a capitalist who has saved up his money and started a factory. Just so you understand, that's the property as a whole they were talking about. And of course he's right. In many ways, I mean, if the aristocracy owns the land and you are bought and sold with the land surf-like, like a piece of livestock, well, then you can't really get ahead. And it wasn't until land became subject to the free market that it became property rather than historical theft. What else did Rousseau write? Ah, the social contract. Oh, you ever heard about this, the social contract? Well, it doesn't come just from him, but he popularized it enormously. This work, the social contract, has sculpted the very bedrock of liberal thought, introduced the pernicious concept of the general will. The general will. Everybody's looking as Montesquieu was. Yeah, it's not chance that rules the world. It's something else. History isn't just an accident. It's not just flip of the coin, who won, who lost. Everybody's looking for the deep movements of history, as am I. But we haven't found it. How do we know we haven't found the deep bedrock and patterns of history? Because everything keeps going to crap. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but if we truly understand what drives history... Why would we spend so much of history as we are in the current time driving ourselves off a cliff? If we understood what caused an illness, we would find a way to prevent or cure it. We have not found how to prevent history from continuing the up and down tsunami of the bloody cycle, which we are fast approaching. We haven't found the principle because we won't look at the beginning of things the beginning of people. So, Rousseau talked about the general will, and, of course, there were many other German philosophers who were very big on the general will, Hegel and so on. If you want more on this, I have a whole history of philosophers series you can find at freedomain.locals.com if you sign up. So the general will, it's not just an aggregate of individual desires, it's the amorphous will of the collective fashioned when citizens considered this communal good. So the reason why I'm pausing on this one quite a bit throughout the entire upheaval and bloody circus of the French Revolution, this notion of the general will was invoked to sanctify any multitude of truly unbelievable atrocities against individuals. The general will. Every sophist who can't convince you with reason, needs to create a giant entity that sanctifies his words. Now, of course, for theologians, it tends to be God. For the aristocracy, it tends to be the divine right of kings and dukes and princes. For the secular Democrat, I don't mean this in the American sense, but the secular Democrat, he wants you to obey him, but when some guy just tells you, do what I want you to do, you'll say, well, who the hell are you to <laughs> tell me what to do? Oh, no, no, no. It can't just be one guy. 
it can't just be one guy. It has to be some big shadowy form that's behind him that he is merely the mouthpiece of, something which cannot be reasoned with, which cannot be argued with, that cannot be cross-examined, that is not subject to the rules of evidence or empiricism. Some big shadowy ghost behind someone. Hey, don't blame me. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what the perfect ghost wants you to do. Don't get mad at me. And you can't argue with the ghost because it doesn't actually exist. The general will does not exist any more than collective eyesight or digestion exists. The will is a manifestation of the individual. It is not a collective that exists independent of the individuals. But you need to create a commanding ghost that the sophist is merely telling you what it wants, and you can't argue with that commanding ghost. And that commanding ghost in the French Revolution was the general will. The general will demands that you do X, Y, and Z. Okay. Can I talk with it? Nope. (laughs) Can I reason with it? Nope. No, just trust me. General Will falls under the modern meme category of trust me, bro. Now, Rousseau also wrote Emile, or On Education, a seminal work on the nexus between an individual and society. Yeah, I know that doesn't explain much. We'll get into it in a bit more uh, detail soon. He also wrote Reveries of the Solitary Walker. And this was an exemplar of the late 18th century penchant for introspection and subjectivity. My thoughts as they travel through my mind. Now, Rousseau believed in a civil religion. A civil religion. As science began to take away the concept of obedience to God, well, people who want to rule others need to give you something that makes you obey them. The election, the general will, the collective, the world spirit, the God, the good of society, whatever it is, right? You just need to create a ghost that compels you, and then, hey, funnily enough, the ghost that compels you never talks to you directly. It only talks through the sophist. So, hey, can't argue with the sophist because he's just repeating the words of the general unquestionable ghost. So, as religion began to fall away, those in charge needed to create a new ghost to compel obedience, and that ghost was the will of the collective, the state, the nation, the world spirit, whatever works. You just, you know, they keep trying these words like keys in a lock to get to unlock and destroy any resistance you have to their nonsense. So Rousseau saw the state as the essence of society. It was both the cradle and the crucible, the nurturing mother and the stern father. The state wasn't just a bunch of bureaucrats and paper pushers and quill pushers. The state was the arbiter of morality and destiny. He visualized an educational system tailored to mold citizens as wards of the state stripping away individual agency to a point where the state would wield absolute dominion over its subjects. Ah, yes. When you give the state control over education, the timer is set for the end of your world. Now, when you take the airy, windy, philosophical virtues spraying like the old faithful geyser out of the mouth holes of the various wordsmiths throughout history, it is not unwise to leap over their flowing, wondrous tapestry of syllables and say, yeah, but how did you live? How did you live? And of course, the intellectuals constantly said, with regards to the priests, well, they say this, but they do the exact opposite, so naturally... We should take that standard and say to the intellectuals, well, you praised this, you said this, how did you live? If you couldn't live your own values, why should I listen to you at all? If you did the opposite of what you preach, why should I listen to you at all? I mean, you will never ever see a diet book with a fat, unhealthy guy on the cover. Why? I mean, obvious reasons, right? Because if the author is fat and unhealthy and has written a diet book, then either he has followed his own diet, in which case you don't want to eat that, whatever he's eating, or he hasn't followed his own diet, in which case why would you listen to him advocate for a diet that he doesn't even want to follow himself? So you look at the person first. Look at the person first. 
Forget what he says. Forget the noise. Forget the syllables. Forget the sophistry. Forget the wet work moving mouth noises. Look at the person first. We know this. We know this. If you want to make your glasses look pretty, put them on a pretty person. <laughs> if you want to make your makeup look good, put it on the skin of somebody with great skin. If you want to make your hair dye look good, put it on the hair of somebody with great hair, such as not me. So, yeah, look at the person. I don't care. And this is nothing new, right? It's the old statement that I can't, I can't hear what you're saying over what you're doing. Look at the person. We don't expect perfection, but we expect some approximation of consistency with the values that are preached. So, look at the person. Look at the person. Now, Rousseau was tender-hearted in his works towards children. How did he live? Well, he had five children, nameless and forgotten, and he handed over, or someone handed over, his five children to horrifying pre-Dickensian state orphanages, which was just ghastly beyond words. Such abandonment to the tender mercies of the state often was a one-way ticket to an early grave. Rousseau, in his time, of course, was also recognized as an absolutely horrible human being. Grimm branded him as odious and monstrous, while Voltaire, who, of course, was a critic, lambasted him as a monster of vanity and vileness. A modern academic listed Rousseau's numerous shortcomings, including being a, quote, masochist, exhibitionist, neurasthenic, hypochondriac, nanist, latent homosexual afflicted by the typical urge for repeated displacements, incapable of normal or parental affection, incipient paranoiac, narcissistic introvert rendered unsociable by his illness, filled with guilt feelings, pathologically timid, a kleptomaniac, infantilist, irritable, and miserly. He was, without a doubt, one of the worst people you could imagine being around. Madame de Warrens was an older woman Rousseau shacked up with as a young man. She paid his bills, and he called her mama. <laughs> Sorry to me to laugh. When she was on her deathbed and destitute, Rousseau did not help, as, and he said, it would likely be taken by the rascals that surround her. Her pleas to him were unanswered, and the woman who paid all his bills, who he had sex with, who supported him, she died alone, likely of starvation. Now, you see, this is the person who tells you what morality is and how to live and how to be good. And his lover and his sugar mama died alone, likely of starvation. Okay, so obviously there's a litany of flaws that the man has, but his legacy remains enigmatic. His intellectual influence seems, seems undimmed by time. Ah, you see, because in part because he gives people the permission to be rampantly hypocritical and to mouth words rather than enact deeds of morality. So we're going to navigate these cataclysmic events of the French Revolution, but the ghost of Rousseau lurks ominously. Those who stoked the fires and rallied the masses often did so with Rousseau's words echoing in their souls. Rousseau set the stage for the success of the kind of interpersonal manipulation that we see rampant today. Throughout the French Revolution, we will see that the most evil of the revolutionaries were inspired by his work. And why were they so ready to be inspired by his work? Why did it work in France, but not other places? Because French childhoods were fairly unique. We'll talk about that. All right, so, thesis, childhood, dominates social acceptance of various ideas. Let's talk about Rousseau versus Locke. Rousseau, of course, it's kind of cheesy to say Rousseau was the father of the French Revolution. Okay, to some degree, it's a defensible thesis. John Locke, British empiricist, was he the father of the American Revolution? Well, he's pretty influential. Now, their political writings, their epistemological writings, and so on, all fairly well known. You can look them up. This is not really the essence of what we're talking about here. What's often overlooked is their approach to childhood. So, John Locke, 29th August, 
1632 to 28 October 1704, Rousseau and Locke wrote quite a bit about how children should be raised. Both were influential in and after the day and helped shape the behavior of the aristocracy and the burgeoning middle class. The middle class. Middle class were the children of science, materialism, and property rights, of uh, free trade, entrepreneurship, and so on. They were an entirely new species in the history of the world. You know, very briefly, you didn't need entrepreneurs throughout most of human history because you, the work was done by slaves. So you didn't need to make things more efficient. You just needed to buy more slaves. And once you buy slaves, you're investing in the value of labor. And if you invest in the value of labor, you're not going to invest in labor-saving devices. Like the people who have money would buy 100 slaves. Then you don't want to also invest in machinery that makes your slaves redundant because then you've just lost the value of your 100 slaves. And slaves cost as much as a small car throughout most of history. So you had to have private property. You had to have a free market. One of the salient characteristics of a free market is the existence of a stock market. So you had to have all of that. Then you get the capitalist, the entrepreneur, the middle class, the bourgeoisie, the small business owners. And they are very dedicated to the free market competition, private property, and so on. Very new species. It required the end of slavery for that really to come about. And, of course, the end or at least diminishment of the maintenance of workers on the land as if they were livestock, right? To be bought and sold with the land, to be a serf. That all had to end. All right. So, in Rousseau's work, Emile, or On Education, he began with, quote, Everything is good as it leaves the hands of the author of things. Everything degenerates in the hands of man. So he was insistent that the titular character he be brought up by a tutor in the countryside, shielded from the corrupting influence of villages and the rabble of valets. So he starts, Rousseau starts, with a condemnation of man as corrupting everything he touches, then follows with the claim of an unshakable belief in the natural goodness of humanity. And he says, and I quote, Let us set down as an incontestable maxim that the first movements of nature are always right, there is no original perversity in the human heart. Now, of course, he was, as a secularist, pushing back on the destructive notion of original sin and re replaced it with the ever-pervading notion that anything natural is inherently good. All that is natural is good. All that is man-made is corrupt. Now, this is very much the opposite, the mirror image of the argument for original sin. The argument for original sin goes something like Human beings are born sinful because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Human beings are born sinful, and it takes massive amounts of labor and instruction and willpower and resisting temptation to make you good. We are born broken, evil, pustulant, and sinful, but through rigorous evolutions and willpower and a rejection of the self, we can achieve heaven. He flipped this and says we're all born good, noble, virtuous, true, honest, and it is the works of man that corrupt us, right? Original sin, we're born corrupted. It's the works of man that save us. For Rousseau, we are born perfect, and it is the works of man who corrupt us. None of this, of course, is rational. But I understand saying it doesn't make the case. Oh, it's not rational. It's not an argument. That's like saying because reasons. But if you want to see how this pervades into the modern world, the idea that all that is natural and good, all that is natural is good, and all that is human is corrupt. You look at the environmental movement, right? That all that is untouched by man is good and pure and noble and right and lovely and excellent. Whereas man comes in and tears down the trees and builds his dark satanic mills and they paved paradise and put up a parking lot, right? That all that is natural is the good, and all that is human is the corrupt. That the cities are bad, that the shire is good, the cottage is good, the factory is terrible. 
we can sort of go into the truth or falsehood of all of this, but the reality is that this springs out of Rousseau. It never would have come out of traditional Christian theology, particularly Catholic theology, because nature is corrupted. So, all that is natural is inherently good. Now, that means, of course, that all of your passions, all of your passions are noble, and that to restrain passion is to corrupt your natural virtues. Giving people an unlicensed or unrestrained positive view of acting out all of their emotions, well, how did that play out? How did that... The idea... Okay, there's a contradiction we have between reason and desire. Oh, we all know this, right? We, I mean, I actually, I'm actually recording this on Halloween 2023. <laughs> October the 31st, 2023. And like all parents... Across the Western world, we will buy giant bags of candy to give to children so that our children can go out and get giant bags of candy from other people. And those giant bags of candy will sit around. And I will know, I will know that the giant bags of candy are not good for me, that they might make me a little sleepy, that they are not great for my waistline or my teeth. (laughs) But I'll be like, oh, one little what could it hurt? We all know that we, oh, I want to exercise, but the couch is really comfortable. We have our instincts, and we have our reason. We have the short-term gain of physical pleasures. We have the long-term value of more consistent and moral behavior and practical behavior. I don't want to floss my teeth, but flossing my teeth is good for me. So there's a tension between our emotions and our reason. And if we live purely rationally without emotion, life gets stripped of depth and love and meaning and pair bonding and all sorts of wonderful things. If we live a life of pure passion, it tends to be chaotic, short, often aggressive, and we don't maintain the kind of virtues necessary for permanent trust-based pair bonding in a family. So we have a tension between reason and emotion. It's a productive tension. It's a beautiful tension. The only alternative is to live like an animal without a brain or live like reason without emotion. The Kirk-Spock <laughs> dichotomy or something like that. So, trying to give people the final answer to the long-term tension between reason and emotion. And it's a good tension. It's a good tension. It's enjoyable. It's fun. It makes life interesting and exciting to navigate. But people don't like this tension and they just want a final answer. Now, of course, some religions will say the final answer is your emotions come from the devil and you must reject everything about the body and pursue only a life of abstract faith-based reason and everything that is natural to your being will corrupt you and must be rejected. Okay, so that's one answer. It's kind of tyrannical, of course, right? The other answer is to say everything that is natural and organic is the good and all restraint is being a square and being self-tyrannical, and you just need to learn how to relax and have fun, and, you know, all of the sort of hippie-based weed comedies that are, well, not so prevalent now, but used to be very prevalent in Hollywood, that all of the people who rejected their instincts were square and had horn-rimmed glasses and pocket protectors and no sexiness, no fun, no spontaneity, no enjoyment, whereas the people who... It's a natural herb, man. <laughs> they would be natural and fun and enjoyable. And of course, nobody checks in in 10 years. That's sort of the purpose of all of that. Yeah, sometimes we need to defer gratification. And yet, if we defer gratification forever, we never end up enjoying life. It's an interesting challenge. Rousseau went, of course, as the French are not unknown to do from one extreme to the other, from self-hatred to licentiousness, from a hostility and rejection of the emotions and the instincts to an enshrinement of them as the ultimate gods to be indulged no matter what. So that was not ideal, to put it mildly. So let's compare Rousseau's self-indulgence with Locke's work from 1693, Some Thoughts Concerning Education. Locke writes, Punishments 
This being laid down in general, as the course ought to be taken, it's fit we now come to consider the parts of the discipline to be used, a little more particularly. I have spoken so much of carrying a strict hand over children that perhaps I shall be suspected of not considering enough what is due to their tender age and constitutions. But that opinion will vanish when you have heard me a little farther, for I am very apt to think that great severity of punishment does but very little good, nay, great harm in education. And I believe that it will be found that Ceteris Paribus, those children who have been most chastised, seldom make the best men. Beating. The common yet ineffective approach of using punishment and physical discipline as a method of control and instruction is unsuitable for education. This approach, which relies on the rod as the primary tool of discipline, is inadequate because it leads to the very problems that undermine the success of education, as previously explained. Not bad for the 1600s, right? Beating physical punishments the rod are absolutely negative. And this is borne out by modern research. I've got a presentation, you can find it on fdrpodcasts.com called The Truth About Spanking, which says that spanking tends to produce the very behavior it's designed to combat. And John Locke was talking about this, right? I mean, he's not exactly a peaceful parent, but at least definitely considering the time period, he was saying that hitting children is ineffective and we should try to avoid punishment and violence with regards to the raising of children. Now, some aristocratic parents did experiment with raising children in the Rousseauian natural fashion, and here's a quote. Richard Edgeworth, born 1764, achieved notoriety as one such child of nature who was allowed by his father to run around as he pleased during his childhood. This produced a fit and healthy body, but on obstreperous character, the ungovernable youngster eventually went off to sea at the age of 15 and had a strained relationship with his family. And this tension, of course, continues. You can see it all over the place in media and parenting, which is the parents who see children being hit or yelled at or, quote, disciplined in harsh and physical ways say that that's really, really destructive. And the disciplinarian parents reply or retort that the parents who never say no and just try to use sweet reason end up with selfish children who have no regard to society's interests or their own long-term interests. Eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, go to bed whenever you want. And again, this doesn't teach children anything useful about the tension between short and long-term gains, reasons, and passions. You have to learn how to navigate these things and try and find a way to balance these things. So, And it also changes over the course of your life. When you're young, you need to defer more gratification because you have more future. When you're older, you don't need to defer gratification as much because you have less future. So it even changes over the course of your life, of course, is one obvious example. Now, Jean-Jacques Rousseau strongly disapproved of the, quote, excessive and uncivilized custom of swaddling. Now, swaddling, we'll get to in a second, is just unbelievable binding in a tight, claustrophobic, half-baby burrito, binding children so they can't move, sometimes even hanging them on hooks, believe it or not, like paintings. He highlighted instances where swaddling was not practiced, drawing from travel narratives about Siam and Canada. On wet nursing, which is the custom of giving your newborn baby to another woman to breastfeed, on wet nursing, Rousseau wrote, quote, despising their first duty, have no longer wanted to feed their children and handed them over to mercenary women. So swaddling, I mean, it's a practice from a particularly savage chapter of child-rearing history, harks back to when infants were mummified in restrictive bindings, turning their tender limbs into rigid stumps. These vulnerable babies were ensnared in cloth, left trapped amidst their filth for hours and hours, often attracting lice, and sometimes hung from hooks. This brutal practice restricted the natural movements and echoed how the era treated the most vulnerable and most deserving of care. Now, again, you look at the natural practices, letting children roam and babies free to move their limbs and 
breastfeeding your own children. These are natural practices and should be embraced, of course. I mean, in fact, as you probably know, the mother's breast milk adapts itself to her baby's physical health and even immune system needs, depending on this interchange between the mother and the child's biology. Breastfeeding your own children is great for IQ and long-term health and, of course, for bonding and skin contact and eye contact and so on. So, of course, when children are being treated in this kind of brutal, horrendous manner, you should correct it. But again, why does the pendulum have to go so far from one side to another to the point where, yes, binding children up in mummified little shrouds and hanging them from hooks is really terrible, but also just indulging their every whim and never give them, giving them any feedback or restraint or restrictions or guidance is also terrible. Why does it have to be so artificial or so unrestrained? Well, because without philosophy, you simply bounce back from one extreme to the other, right? And Rousseau, we can say, yes, he should be credited at promoting breastfeeding and opposing swaddling. But of course, he was a pure demon as a father himself, remember? He had five children with a mistress, didn't name any of them, tossed them to brutal state orphanages, consigning them to an almost certain death. All right, let's look at childhood as a whole in 18th century France, because I'm saying that this is the demonic bed from which the revolution sprung. In 18th century France, childhood was a hell of neglect and abandonment, much like the rest of Europe, with England and the Americas that came from them as a relative exception. England, that gave birth to America, there was an exception to the brutal child-raising practices, which is one of the reasons why England developed freedoms and America enshrined them in a constitution. So, from the book The Emotional Life of Nations, I quote, It was in England and America where well-to-do mothers first began to experiment with nursing their own children, being well aware that most children died at nurse because of lack of care and poor conditions. These mothers wrote to each other letters about the joys of nursing themselves. How babies during breastfeeding, quote, kisseth her, strokes her hair, nose and ears, causing an affection to grow between mother and infant. If the husband objects, saying his wife's breast belonged to him, he should be asked to hold the baby, and he'll be delighted too. By contrast, in France, as late as 1780, the police chief of Paris estimated that only 700 out of the 21,000 children born each year in his city were nursed by their mothers, most being sent out to French wet nurses, termed professional feeders and professional killers, since England led the rest of Europe in ending swaddling, wet nursing, and battering their children, it is no accident that soon after it also led the world in science political democracy, and industrialization. Ah, there was a revolution in England, of course. There was a revolution in America, a revolution in France. Very different. The roots are in childhood. How can you develop empathy when you're bound in your own filth, attacked by lice, hung on a hook on the wall, brutalized, ignored, rejected, breastfed on a conveyor belt by a bitter, depressed, angry, hostile, dangerous woman. How could you develop any empathy for yourself, for others, for the future? This kind of brutalism, we saw this in Ceausescu's Romania, where 100,000 children were raised in orphanages. Their physical needs were taken care of. They were fed, good temperature. But they grew up to be monsters because they weren't interacted with. They just got to watch these old grainy videos of the Lion King to distract them. And lots of people in France tried to adopt these kids and had to create rage rooms for the kids to destroy things, and they were not cured. This was a window into still far better parenting than would have happened in France before the revolution. But this is how you destroy society, is you first destroy childhood. So we're talking about childhood in 18th century France. Children spent the first year of their life bound in a swaddle and likely away from their parents. Affluent or not, corporal punishment was rife, and there wasn't even the idea of such a thing as verbal, mental, or emotional abuse. 
When very young, these children would be sent off to a school of some type. For many in France, of course, it was a Jesuit college. The children experienced so much violence in their lives that they lived it, they brawled and dueled. From the book Centuries of Childhood, A Social History of Family Life, and I quote, the youngest children from the age of five could already wear a sword, which was not simply for ornament or prestige. There are many accounts of children being killed in duels. Here's a quote. In 1646, one of our pupils, a nobleman from Cistron and a metaphysician, was killed in a duel without having the opportunity to show any sign of contrition. Across the French population and in these schools, children were beaten and humiliated with the birch. Here's a quote. In an illustration from the early 15th century, we see a punishment being administered. A boy around 12 or 13 years old with his pants partially lowered lies across a fellow student's back. Another pupil is holding his legs while the teacher prepares to strike with the birch. If you were richer, you could avoid the birch with a fine instead, which of course is a perfect recipe for inflaming class resentment. And this happened to me. I was sent to boarding school when I was six years old and I was beaten in boarding school. These practices continued, even, of course, into the 20th century, late 20th century. Even kings were not spared. Here's another quote. Even royalty was not exempt from battering, as the childhood of Louis XIII confirms. A whip was at his father's side at the table, and as early as 17 months of age, the Dauphin knew enough not to cry when threatened with the whip. At 25 months, regular whippings began. Often on his bare skin, he had frequent nightmares about his whippings, which were administered in the morning when he awakened. When he awakened, he wasn't beaten for anything other than regaining consciousness. And, of course... Imagine if you're waking up to a beating, how disturbed your sleep will be, how miserable you will be, how broken your personality will be, starting at the age of two. <sighs> Appalling. Kings were also sexually abused as children. Here's another quote. Louis Thirteenth was not yet one year old. He laughed uproariously when his nanny waggled his cock with her fingers. It was an amusing trick which the child soon copied. Calling a page, he shouted, Hey there, and pulled up his robe, showing him his toy cock. If this could happen to a king, what could happen to other children of the age? On top of the verbal, mental, sexual, and emotional abuse was the shame and humiliation of the day. The endless neglect was bad enough, but on top of that, Belief in original sin was rampant, as was sexual guilt and humiliation. Here's a quote. Gerson researched the sexual behavior of children to aid confessors in instilling a sense of guilt in young penitents aged between 10 and 12. He acknowledged that the activities of masturbation and masturbation without ejaculation are commonly practiced. Gerson believed that if a person denies having any experience with masturbation, they are deceitful. To him, the act of Peccatum molecci, the sin of softness, even if not accompanied by pollution due to a child's young age, is more detrimental to a child's virginity than if they had engaged with a woman at the same age. Moreover, it is akin to sodomy. Let's talk about life as a whole. In 18th century France, what were the effects of this rampant and unbelievable to the modern ears and eyes levels of child abuse? Well, of course, the vast majority of the French population were poor, Peasants, they spent their early days abandoned, neglected, confined in swaddles plagued by lice, and then perhaps as one of the countless street children after that. They were, of course, perceived to be born sinful and wicked. If they survived childhood, they grew up beaten, starving, abused, and broken, and they were told that their station in life was due to their evil nature and laziness. Here's a quote. Views of the poor in 17th and 18th century England and France changed from that of the poor as sinners to the poor as lazy. Poor relief, it's a form of voluntary 
church welfare. Poor relief reflected this change through law and ideology. In the 17th century, the poor were in need of moral reform. They led a life of sin, which caused their state of poverty. Fixing this required charity for all while reforming their morals through spirituality. Once the poor were cleansed of their sins, they could help themselves. The 18th century, bringing with it the Enlightenment, changed these beliefs. The crime of the poor became laziness rather than sin. Training and support, it was believed, would make the poor self-supporting. If they could not work and support themselves, then they were lazy and required confinement and forced labor. Now, of course, into this milieu comes Rousseau, who pushes back against this idea of original sin, offering a kind of relief to the masses who live under the burden of an ocean of unearned guilt and shame. From divine punishment for existing to an untamed natural animal, neither view befits the station of humane reason. And, of course, if you're neglected, abused, verbally humiliated, sexually humiliated, molested, you grow up with a lot of anger. And then when Rousseau comes along and says, you should vent all of your natural impulses, there should be no limit to the enacting of your passions. All restraint is bourgeois prejudice. He is uncorking the rage and the violence that manifests over the course of the French Revolution. Repress, brutalize, grind down, destroy, humiliate, set against themselves, do all of this to the children. And then Rousseau comes along and says, all restraint to your natural passions is bourgeois prejudice and anti-human, and you must floridly enact all of your deepest and darkest impulses. Well, when society treats you that way, what respect could you possibly have for the rules of society? It's impossible. Impossible to imagine that it could have gone any different. Absent true rational philosophy and sympathy for the children who had been harmed. But yeah, we get angry at our abusers, and without any sense of self-restraint, society tends to get kind of murderous when the blowback inevitably happens. 